Okay, this is the 10th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. And now here's Patrick to introduce the subjects of today's podcast. Okay, ready. Let's do it. Forget the waitresses, forget the cocktail bars, forget the brilliantly simple chorus that ensured Don't You Want Me would be a number one single around the world and still be considered a pop classic almost four decades later. While it's understandable that many people's memories of the Human League revolve around their global smash hit, for the real story, we need to go back to the future. In 1977, a couple of art school students in the Yorkshire city of Sheffield decided to form a band called, yes, The Future. Martin Ware and Ian Craig Marsh were beginning to forge a reputation in the Steel City for their innovative electronic sound when they realised they needed a singer and that they knew a porter at the local hospital with a wacky, long-fringed hairstyle who might fit the bill. Then, with Phil Oakey on board, the future of the future was soon to be pop music history. Confused? Well, it's a confusing story. How did a bunch of sci-fi-loving non-musicians from a grim industrial city in Northern England help shape the destiny of popular music and sell millions of records along the way? Welcome to the peculiar world of the Human League. Very nice, Patty. It's a great story, the Human League. Yes, I, I love this story. Some people might think, how can the Human League be considered post-punk? But adopting our references, which were anything that grew up out of punk and went on to do something interesting mm. is post-punk, then the Human League gets a Guernsey. Absolutely. For me. And um, yeah, Sheffield, not Sheffield. the most obvious post-punk ground. It doesn't come up as often as your Manchester's and your Liverpool's. It does not. However, there's some uh, pretty big bands come out of Sheffield. Very like, fruitful. Yeah. Pulp, Def Leppard, who can forget them? <laughs> Def Leppard. Yeah. Cabaret Voltaire, Bonafide yes, post-punk. Yes. ABC, who also make a case for being a post-punk band, but that's for another podcast. Uh, and the Comsat Angels. Oh, I love the concept. Yeah. I was saying to Patty earlier, I was convinced that Judas Priest were from there as well, which was going to be great, but it turns out they're from Birmingham, so Birmingham. no story it's about It's only them. a short bus ride. It's not far away, but um, mm. yeah, it's a shame. Anyway, back to so, Sheffield. <laughs> yeah, and the early, Sheffield. the early Human League. Now, yes, yes. now, I think they also knew, the two guys knew Phil Oakey outside of the portering that he was doing. Yes, yes. He was a fixture on the local nightclub scene. I think Martin Ware went to school... With Phil. That's, yeah, um, yeah. And maybe they'd been in hospital at the same together. time. <laughs> they were in the same car crash <laughs> together. But, uh, yeah, so they were part of the same kind of broad social group. Well, Sheffield being a small city. Yeah, yeah. People yeah. would have known each other. There's probably about 50 people that were interested in this music yeah, yeah, at the time yeah, and they all yeah, kind of knew right. each other. Uh, interestingly, they also knew uh, Glenn Gregory. Yes. And he was their first choice of Yeah, singer. I didn't yes. realise that. The future singer of Heaven, Heaven 17. 17. which we'll get to later. Mm, yes. He wasn't available. <laughs> he turned the future down. <laughs> so, yes, uh, Ian, Craig Marsh and Martin Ware formed a band called The Future, kind of an electronic-y, experimentally sort of band. And Which was unusual in itself at the time. Yeah, Not yeah, many absolutely. other post-punks were looking yeah, to yeah. include drum machines and keyboards that I'm aware of, apart from Cabaret Voltaire and a few others, but it wasn't the done thing. No, no. It was well, quite unusual. Mm, well, I think... They had a passing interest in punk as a phenomenon but found it pretty limiting pretty quickly. And mm. the story I read was that Martin Ware didn't even go to see the Sex Pistols when they came to Sheffield, for instance. That's how uninterested he was in punk. So they Well, he was a computer operator by yeah, trade, yeah, so he yeah. was probably pretty boring. Mm, yeah. Sorry, computer operators yeah. out there. <laughs> he was probably listening to Kraftwerk. Too, he was right. probably listening to Kraftwerk, that's right. Yeah, yeah a bit of Kraftwerk, a bit of sci-fi. A bit of Tangerine Dream. A mm, bit of Doctor bit, Who. Definitely Doctor Who. Well, I was going to actually bring up Doctor Who because they were big fans of Doctor Who. One of the mm. first tracks on the first album, which was Empire State Human, reminds me of the Doctor Who theme. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, and I never liked Doctor Who, but I can see the influence that that track might have had on mm, yeah. some of these guys. Well, if you've heard any of the stuff by the future, because um, there there's stuff out there on out there in the world, um, it does sound quite a bit like the incidental music of an episode of Doctor Who, right? For instance, so with, with a little with bit no of vocals, main, mainly not, right? I think because Phil came came in a bit later, and uh, the story goes that he was. Not home when they went around to ask him to be the singer. Ah, oh, okay. And left a note on his door. Would you like to be the singer of the future? Please oh, call this nice. number. 
Um, and he um, he never sang in front of an audience, couldn't play keyboards, didn't really have yep. any musical yep. ability, but looked the yeah, part. Yeah. So that was good enough, which is very punk mm. yeah. as well, yeah, yeah. post-punk. He just he looked right, so we'll get him in and surely yeah, he'll yeah, be fine. Yeah. And and as we were saying before, he has a great voice. Even on the early stuff, he, he, he has a really distinctive voice and can sing, mm. could sing then, uh, which kind of, Marks him out as did quite different. He, did he have the haircut back then? I don't think he had the lopsided haircut till a little bit later that you're ah. talking about because that that's a that's an interesting question. I, I assumed he had the lopsided. I don't. Hairstyle I think all that came through. later. He was always a bit of a, a fashion guy, though. He was always mm. sort of interested in different stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, he he was definitely a face on the scene. Well, at the time, as we talked about, Phil was working as a porter at the hospital, and he actually has described it as a pretty good job. So I don't know that he was, you know, desperately unhappy on a on a day to day basis. He wasn't keen to leave and join <laughs> the future. <laughs> I love that. Join the future. Yeah. I mean, what a great yeah, name yeah, for a band. Yeah, yeah. It's surprising that no one's taken it. But he was. Um, I think he was interested in music, maybe as a way of helping him to fulfil his hospital porter dreams. <laughs> but uh, no, well, he he has um, been quoted as saying that it was a great job, but he had absolutely no prospects. And that if you worked very, very hard there for 15 years, you'd get to be deputy head porter. Well, which was it's not to be sniffed you know, at. Not to be sniffed at. No. no, no, that's right. But uh, in terms of the band asking Phil if he was interested in being singer, uh, I don't know if you heard the story that they gave him a recording of the song Being Boiled, an instrumental, obviously. Mm-hmm. And he, two days later, came up with the, the lyrics, Listen to the voice of Buddha. Listen to the voice of Buddha. Saying stop your sericulture. Saying stop your sericulture. Which completely mystified everyone, including Phil. One of Phil. the strangest lyrics ever because <laughs> it makes no sense at all. It is. Well, yeah. Phil later said that um, he'd got Buddhism confused with Hinduism, ah. which, which doesn't really clarify it. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. But it relates to vegetarianism. Right. And so the cultivation of silkworms, presumably for eating, are silkworm cultivation of silkworms being sericulture, I believe, Um, and that Hinduism is slightly more hardcore in terms of being pro-vegetarianism than Buddhism is. So that was his motivation for writing that lyric, so I gather. I think it just sounded good. It does sound good. I had no idea what that song was about. I don't think anyone does. I think it just sounded good. His voice sounded good saying these things Mm. and it was a very futuristic sounding track. I mean, being boiled. When I first heard it, I hadn't heard anything like that before. No, no. It was quite sort of strange, but very, very cool at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And the music was later appropriated by um, Fade to Grey. If you if you listen to the chord progression, it's exactly oh, you think it's quite similar? Exactly the same. Yeah, for, uh, the Is this another of your legal <laughs> case pending stories? Maybe Graham? we shouldn't keep doing this to, to bands <laughs> that we loved. It's quite funny. I was watching uh, Being Boiled on YouTube recently, and uh, whoever was holding up the iPhone and recording it live, and this was quite recent, uh, when they play that chorus chord change, whoever was holding the phone was singing Fade to Grey. Ooh, <laughs> cheeky. Yes. Wow, so um, I guess I'm going to have to do another one of these comparisons. So the band are together now. Yes. We've got we've got a three piece. Yes. At this yes. point. And they did record what being boiled as their first single. Well, they did a demo which yeah. found its way to Fast Product. Yeah. Scottish label, I think it was. Possibly sure, yeah. had the scars on there at one point. May have had some early buzzcocks on various things. Mm. Maybe even mm. a Joy Division track. Anyway, it was a, a small indie label at the time. Uh, Bob Last was the owner of the label, and he put out their first couple of singles, I believe. He was quite taken with them. And they started playing live, uh, and they may have done their first gig in about 78, I think, in Sheffield. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. But they started to get the attention of the major record label, so this is is becoming the human league that we recognise. Yeah, yeah. Um, Funnily enough, they were a three-piece, I think, for their first gig, mm. and then uh, they knew this fellow called Adrian Wright, who had a lot of slides and stills and had, you know, was big on the uh, projector. Not on him at the time. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, he used to carry it around a very big backpack. <laughs> very bulky. <Yeah. laughs> uh, and they said to him, our live show 
is very boring and we need help. Mm. And he said, I know, I was there. So he... Um, he was ca- quickly co-opted into the band. Yes, yes. yes. And so, they were a four-piece. Yeah, with their little tape recorder where you'd expect the, the drummer to be as a mm. kind of an art rock <laughs> statement or a post-punk statement. When was the last time you heard a band um, getting a, an audiovisual guy in? <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it not, it's just, not done anymore, it just, is it? It doesn't sound right, does it? No, no. Look, I think they were all about doing something different. This is the point of this, having tapes and slides and, a, and, and all this sort of stuff. They didn't want to do what everybody else was doing at the time. The landscape, as we said before, for post-punk was, was kind of set in some ways, and it was mm. mainly about guitars yeah, and yeah. a bit of synth. These guys are all about we're not going to use any real instruments at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it which, was a, which is quite unusual. Yeah, it was a punk attitude, but equally they were a little older than that. Phil Oakey was born in 1955, for instance, so he was right. 21, 22 when the whole punk thing was happening. And I think they all seemed to feel as if they were a little bit beyond punk, kind of intellectually, I think. I think they were a little bit academic, mm. maybe, in, in their approach. So they had no interest in politics, apparently. Like, their songs weren't political. Their songs were about TV shows and their songs were about children who wished that they were as tall as the Empire State Building and and cover versions of, you know, classic songs and, you know, they were like mm. eccentric kind of mad studenty kind of stuff mm. rather than rebelling against society. Mm. As, well, they had a sense such. of humour. Yeah, absolutely. In the first and second album, the lyrics especially were about anything. I mean, mm-hmm. the the songs like almost medieval. Off the tarmac, there's no stagecoach speed limit. Outside the office hangs the man on the gibbet. Mm. I mean, what, yeah. What, <laughs> <laughs> What's that got to do with anything yeah, yeah. on the first album? And, yeah, Empire State Human is, is hilarious. Yeah. Um, well, I think Black, well, Black, 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 Hit, of Black Hit of Space, Space which, is one of my favourites. Which went to number one. And then into Minus Figures. It got to number one, then into Minus Figures. No, no. That's how good it was. Mm. <laughs> so nobody could understand why. Yeah. It's, there's, no, there's nothing like them. That first album isn't isn't the easiest in some ways, but um, mm. but then you've got yeah a cover version of uh, the Righteous Brothers. Yeah, you've, you've lost, lost that love and feeling. feeling. Yeah. Who was doing that? And he can sing it too. Mm. It's yeah, not. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a proper song, and it sounds fantastic. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. Yeah, and that yeah. album, whenever it came out, uh, October '79. Was um, was quite unusual, as I recall it, and interestingly produced by Colin Thurston, yeah, who went on to produce the first two Duran Duran yeah, albums. Yeah. That's for you, Jason, my brother. He doesn't <laughs> believe Duran Duran have any uh, post-punk credentials, but yeah, mm. Colin Thurston uh, was obviously a producer of the time and doing a few things, but he um, was also involved in magazine, doing uh, a magazine album as well. Right. So uh, he he had definitely had credentials and and came up with a polished product in reproduction. Yeah, the first yeah, yeah. proper album on Virgin. And actually, I, I said about a black of a political manifesto, but we've kind of glossed over the Dignity of Labor EP. Oh yes, which was their first EP slash mini album release, which is a four track instrumental. What was on that? The Dignity of Labor Part One, the Dignity of Labor Part Two. Did <laughs> you tell me they put part three on there somewhere? Three and four. <laughs> right. Yes. That was on Fast as well. That was an independent release. Ah, okay, right, yep. yep. In 79. Yeah. But this was getting them attention from record companies. This is the interesting part about this. It was quite inaccessible and difficult to listen to and yet record companies like Virgin were interested in them. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that yep. tells you something about Virgin, I suppose, at the yeah, time because yep. they have a history of um, post-rock and experimental music at the time and they were looking for bands like that but it wasn't something you could make money out of no <laughs> that no, stuff no, it's no. quite difficult to listen to and the first album subsequently wasn't um a big hit no 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 but, I think but, it but failed, this failed to chart failed to chart but the, the interesting story about the first album is that that um, virgin weren't happy with with any of it and made them record um the first single which was I Don't Depend depend On on You yeah Yeah. with real instruments and backing singers and if you listen to it now it sounds like I don't know what like it could be from now Mm. it's just a really nice poppy song with a bit of a fretless bass thing going on it doesn't sound anything at all like the Human League of any description I don't depend on you I've got my own friends too I'll never be your wife don't try to you and so they released it under a pseudonym 
calls the men. The men. I don't know how they managed to get Virgin to agree to that. Okay. We don't like anything you're doing. We're going to put you in a studio with session guys and make you do a pop song. Okay, that's fine, but you can't call it the Human League. It's going to be, have to be called something yeah. else. Okay. Yeah. Well, what was the point of that? What was the point? <laughs> that achieve for either party. <laughs> yeah. um, and so subsequently they let them go back and, and, and do yeah, whatever they yeah. wanted. Well, it was, it was a particularly interesting time for that kind of music because between the release of the Dignity of Labour EP in April 79 and their reproduction album in October 79, mm. a certain song called Our Friends Electric was released. You're talking about Gary Newman? I'm talking about Gary Newman and your Two-Way Armies, yeah. which completely mm. changed the game for, for electronic music. Mm. And it's interesting for me hearing the reproduction album in that context because it feels just a little bit behind the times almost already because it did feel a little bit as if... That spaceship had sailed? (laughs) Fractionally, yeah. Yeah, it was great. But I think they felt the same way as well. They were Mm. going, what the hell happened here? We We are the the great electronic hope. Well, they were were the future. They were the future, literally. They Mm. were annoyed about the fact that Gary Newman was having success and Mm. they weren't having any and that led to some tensions. But but Gary Newman had a unified vision because he was doing everything himself. He wrote mm. the songs, sang the songs, produced yeah. everything. Human League were quite sort of all over the shop. You've got, you yeah, know, yeah. It's a very electronic sound, but then you've got these strange lyrics that have very little bearing on anything mm. and the sense of humour and some of the jokey sort of stuff yeah, that was yeah. in it as well. It wasn't really clear what they were up to. It was very arty, yeah, yeah, as you yeah. say. It was very studenty and kind of like mm. having a bit of a laugh at the whole thing and yet they yeah, wanted to be yeah. taken seriously at yeah. the same time. But the Human League was certainly a massive kind of underground presence and they obviously were known by a lot of people. I mean, David Bowie mm. considered them to be the music of 1980, which fortunately he didn't say 1981, but mm. in 1979. So he considered it to be, you know, futuristic music and it was a big compliment. And they had the ultimate compliment of being name-checked in a song by the Undertones. Yeah. <laughs> Not in a positive way, though. <laughs> my, my Perfect Cousin, where the lyric is... His mum bought him a synthesizer. He's got the Human League into advisor. Now he's making lots of noise. Playing around with the art school boys. There's a kind of a joke about arty, studenty guys who can't get women, which is one of the problems with poor old cousin Kevin in My Perfect Cousin. Is that right? Am I remembering it correctly? Well, there was a there was an issue with Subudio as well. Which <laughs> table soccer. Table soccer mm. to the uninitiated, yeah. yeah anyway. Yeah. Yeah, we digress. Yeah, so, but they were sufficiently like that song. My perfect cousin was a top ten hit in the UK, name checking the Human League before the Human League had figured even in the top fifty. Mm. So they they were making waves. They they were known mm. and not necessarily liked. I think they were just ploughing their own furrow a little mm. bit. Yeah. But, but yeah. Um, the people that liked them really liked them, and I I remember having the first two albums on the cassette on, on either yeah. side. The usual story and yeah. and playing them a lot. Yeah. I loved some tracks on reproduction, for, for sure. But to a certain extent, I think I was an extremely serious young lad and I wanted my music to be serious. If I wanted mm. comedy, you know, I'd go to the two Ronnies. So, <laughs> Why the two Ronnies? <laughs> you can't get hilarious. any better than the two Ronnies. One Ronnie's good. Two, that's unstoppable. Yeah, either Ronnie would have, would have been plenty. Mm. But the two of them in tandem, did you see them? They were hilarious. Comedy dynamite, Graham. It was. It was gold, <laughs> yeah. I remember. No, I, I'm with Paddy. I think the lyrics did throw me a little bit mm. um, because they did seem jokey a lot of yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. The it, it sung is a very serious matter. Though. Yeah, but they were, some of the songs were funny and they were genuinely funny songs, but then there were other songs on the same album which you'd be expected to sort of take seriously or which mm. were meant to appear heartfelt. And it just seemed like, okay, so you're a comedy guy and we're supposed to yeah. you know, think you're really worried about the future of the world. The message you know? was confusing, mm. I think yeah. that's fair to say. But anyway, it didn't do anything that first album, so <laughs> no, no. you were you're vindicated with that. Mm. Though I still mm. listen to it now and think it sounds amazing. Yeah, and just to confuse their place in the alternative scene slash pop music world, their first appearance on Top of the Pops was to promote a track on another EP released a few months after reproduction, Holiday 80, mm. which featured a cover version of a Gary Glitter song. Which is great. Which is, it's a great version of it and mm. uh, their version of uh, Iggy Pop's Night, 
album yep. is fantastic yep. as well. Yeah, but, yeah, that was a four, four track EP. Yeah, yeah. But it was again, it was it was a really strange thing because you've got these guys on top of the pops singing a Gary Glitter song, which you could not get less cool. Well, apart from right now with Gary Glitter, you <laughs> it's got worse for Gary. You, you, you couldn't have got gotten much less cool in 1980 than Gary Glitter, and mm. they did a cover version of it quite seriously in a sense. Like there was no there was no feeling of it being an ironic cover version. Mm. And you got like a bearded guy on stage, Martin Ware. I don't know what he was thinking with the beard in 1980, but anyway, um, and imploring the audience to clap. And a bearded guy in an arty post-punk band playing a Gary Glitter cover, imploring the audience to clap. It's confusing. Mm. It's, to, it's, to a young it's lad kind of like yourself, you it's probably didn't great. know what to think. But yeah, it's like, are they cool? Are they so far beyond cool that they've come back around? Or <laughs> that's or, possibly what they were aiming for. Mm. So that was their first appearance. Mm, I think right. so. Okay. Um, can I just say that I wanted to mention Blind Youth and maybe even play a little bit of it. The song, the song Blind Youth, um, where, where it says "No Future," they say. It yes. doesn't have to be that way. I thought that that song would have been a great single. Like everyone talks about Empire State Human as being the most commercial song on there. But um, I'm surprised they didn't release Blind I reckon if they released Blind Youth now, we'd do really well. Right. Blind Youth, take hold your nose. To, to some extent, that song was an anti-punk message. Well, that's that, what I'm saying about the lyrics. So, yeah. yeah, so it was high-rise living's not so bad is one of the lines in there, kind of mm. going, it's all right, these horrible <laughs> high-rise buildings that, well, even that just the, referencing the uh, clash and the sex you know, these, these kind of guys Saying think, uh, no future, they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just straight out of God Save the Queen. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, kids. Come on, guys, cheer up. Cheer up. <laughs> Here's an episode of Doctor Who on next week. <laughs> Followed by the two Ronnies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I jumped back a bit then, but uh, we're no, in, we're yeah, in, no, no, fair enough. It looks like in May 1980 they toured the UK. Well, that was the release of Travelog, the second album in May 1980. Yes. So I guess they went back to the studio and had another crack at it. Yeah, yeah. And they yeah. had been touring through that period, but the second album was a little bit more polished and um, subsequently charted. Yeah, num- number 16. Next top of number 16. Yeah. It got to number 16 first week in. Like mm. it was, so it kind of came out of nowhere. So there was obviously a bit of a vibe on the streets about this band for them to be number 16 first week in. I mean, there mm. were mm. other bands around at the time. Uh, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, their debut album was oh, yeah. was around at roughly the same time, at the, but that was creeping up the charts, you know, five places, you know, per week. It was whereas... no black hit of space, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. No. We, really, we really need to reference some of those. <laughs> Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. The, and the trend continued on Travelogue with with songs like "Crow and a Baby," which is a great song, but I don't know. I is don't it know. a great song though? I think it's a great song. I <laughs> don't know. Though? I don't know what he's on about. That I, opening, the opening line. You just you don't like it. I don't you, want you a crow that, and a baby to have an affair. You don't think uh, <laughs> that's miscegenation. <laughs> <laughs> Never the twain shall meet. <laughs> Um, fair enough, fair enough. Um, the other thing I was going to talk about on Travelogue was um, Touchables. It's not easy to conceal, but you're so touchable. People will hide indifference just to be touchable. It's a great song and could have been on subsequent Human League albums. It mm. sounds like a song mm. from Dare, possibly. It, it's it's heading in that direction. Yet we've still got the same four members at this point. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah. this is everything's going well, not going swimmingly, but um, mm. and they did a version of a Gordon's Gin ad. Yeah, yes. not so much a version; it's just a little interlude, mm. I think. So that that continued a trend of having a cover on on everything they almost every album they released anyway. But I was just wondering whether they were getting any money because there's another song called Toyota City. Well, that, that's not a cover. Is, is, is there any kind of you know, money they're getting off the back end it, there? It's probably a bit of a postmodern thing, you know. We all live in a commercial world, you know, like they mm. like that kind of stuff. Yeah, Referencing yeah. those sorts of things. Um, and how come Being Boiled was on this album? Mm. Mm. That's an interesting one given that it was their first single. Yeah. They re-recorded it and it was a little bit faster, but it was mm. on, on the second album. I can't recall if they released it as a single. They did on Fast. But were they released it as a single off uh, Travelogue? Uh, I 
don't think they did. It was re- released subsequently years later, but it was definitely it's definitely on the album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, it's sort of been around a lot and come back and been reissued and so on. Um, but I, I thought as an album it was it was really quite astounding. As I said, I had it on both sides of a cassette, um, both albums on both yeah, sides. Yeah, yeah. Um, WXJL Tonight, is that's a fantastic song about yep. the decline of radio. Graham, you'd be interested in that. There is no decline of radio. Radio is going strong We're like going department strong, stores yes. are going strong. It's all good. It's all <laughs> nothing to see here. It's all good. <laughs> Everyone just keeps and smiling. Books. Yeah. And CDs, they're all going strong. Books and CDs, they're all going well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... I think that might bring to an end the Human League Part 1 story. Part 1 story. Uh, am I right in saying that it's schism time? Well, yeah, it is. I'd just like to say that those first two albums I think are com- completely underrated in their influence and their breadth of what they were trying to do. Mm. Jokey lyrics aside, have a listen to them again today, remastered or whatever you will. Yeah, I, I would mm. put them up with Ultravox in there. Yeah, well, I was going to say that they were doing something similar to Ultravox pre Mid-Ewer, but the, the original Ultravox anyway. Mm. Um, and I can't think of too many bands that were really treading this sort of territory, you know. No, no. In the same way, like saying we're not going to have any real instruments. A lot of people were using them, you know, in, in conjunction with regular instruments, but yeah, they were yeah. like adamant that they wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a full manifesto. Yeah, yeah, which, mm. which makes sense then. But then we get to the split. Yes. When things get really interesting. Yeah, so I guess you'll read different things about the split. Mm. But certainly a version that I've read a couple of times is Martin Ware being kicked out of his own band, mm. a band he, he'd formed, so that Phil Oakey can go on to become the big pop star that his manager, Bob Last, the aforementioned Bob Last. Formerly of Fast Product yep, Records. Yes. Um, wanted him to be and the assumption was that Ian Craig Marsh would probably stay in the human league with Phil. Instead, Phil was left stranded with his slides and projector guy mm. um, and effectively <laughs> musicless because neither of them played an instrument. No, so, or, or, or wrote any mm. of the songs as far as I'm aware. Yeah, I think yeah. it was just the usual creative differences, but I think the tension of not having any, any great success yeah. led yeah. to that as well and the jeal- jealousy over Gary Newman. Yeah, yeah. And around that time... As well, Fade to Grey mm. uh, was released late 1980, Vienna, early 81. So, you know, it was all happening for everybody except, except them, him, albeit though. that Travelogue, oddly, had got to number 16 mm. and nobody can understand why <laughs> because there was no single to back it up. No. Like, they just had flop single after flop single. There was no, no sense that the band was ever going to get anywhere. Just, just a buzz about the band on the street. Well, yeah, they, they yeah. did tour and they were, you know, it was a slow process. But I think mm. what Patrick's saying is that there was a lot happening around them that should have been, should have included them and didn't. Yeah. Mm. So I think, you know, Phil decided he wanted to take it in a more commercial way. The other two obviously were original members anyway and decided yeah, we'll yeah. go our own way. But it did feel a little bit from what I've read, the kind of split almost came from the manager rather than from anyone else in the band thinking, okay, this has got to change. I've read different things, just that they they weren't happy and they basically decided to go their own ways. Um, but the, the interesting part of that is that Phil Oakey kept the name The Human League and the debt that was owed to Virgin <laughs> for the advance. So, mm. I mean, surely you'd say, well, I don't want that, but he was determined to keep the name, but that's what came with it. So yeah. mm. the, uh, the other two, Martin Ware and Ian Craig Marsh, had to go off and start something else. Yeah, so they had nothing... Absolutely nothing other than a legal right to, I think, 1% of the royalties yeah. of the next Human League album, which was clearly going to amount to nothing. Absolutely. So what what fools they were mm. to do that. <laughs> uh. But, but it's, who would have thought, like, two guys of limited ability? Which two are you talking about? <laughs> well, the audiovisual guys. Because the other guys right. didn't have a singer, which is slightly problematic. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, look, this is what's really interesting about this story, this conflict that comes out of kind of didn't really need to come. It was obviously just someone had a bit of a spat and, well, I'm leaving and I'm, we'll leave as well. And yeah, yeah. They both, both bands stayed on Virgin. Both bands were using the same recording studio at different times. So there was no great animosity there. No. They just decided that um, they'd go and do their own things and, and see what came of it. Yeah, mm. yeah. And... Um, yeah. And what this was like, like late nineteen eighty. Yeah, yeah. Then the story goes that the Human League had a tour booked for Europe in a few weeks' time, and of course the other two, well, we're not in the Human League anymore. We don't have any issue with that. You go and do mm. your tour, Phil. 
<laughs> so so Phil's kind of left a little bit high and dry at this yeah. point. And he he was also being threatened with being sued a very large amount of money if he didn't fulfil the tour dates. And I've seen a figure of a quarter of a million pounds wow. mentioned. Plus as, the debt to Virgin. Yeah. <laughs> no, no pressure. Yeah. No pressure But at it's all. okay. <laughs> I've got a guy who can... Who can, um, who can show some slides. Show some slides. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all going to be fine. But I guess they're and allowed to... I can to... sing. So a cappella with slides, that's going to work. That's going to work. It's the future, mm. literally. It's the future. So yeah. what does Phil do? So he thinks maybe a female backing vocalist would help. That'll distract them. <laughs> That's always worked before. While I make good my escape off stage. <laughs> I'll hide under this fringe. So Phil heads out one night in to, Sheffield. To a futurist music night at, yeah. a, at a nightclub. I th- what was it called? The Dolly Daisy nightclub or something? <laughs> something it was like some that. ridiculous name, <laughs> yeah. um, which escapes me now, but it was something along those lines with his then girlfriend, Looking, yes. looking for a backing singer. It was the Crazy Daisy. Crazy Daisy. I don't know where High I got Dolly Street. Daisy. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and yeah. he sees a couple of girls dancing in the club and, and goes, well, that, they could be, you know, or one of them or both of them could be what we're looking for. And they, apparently they had a great look and had great moves and sort of just looked like what he imagined yeah, he yeah, wanted, yeah. which yeah. is just amazing in itself. Yeah. So he approaches them. He's well known around the scene, so they know this guy. Yeah, yeah. And sort of recruits them to... Um, to join the Human yeah. League Part 2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mark 2. Yeah. I don't know if you heard how he described what they were dressed like. He said they were dressed like Gary Newman. Really? Which Ooh. is... An, Ooh. Gary's featuring quite, a lot in this quite, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> which is mm. quite a picture, really, they, these two girls two who attractive look like Gary Newman. High school girls. Now, they were they hadn't finished high school. Yes, they were still right. currently studying for their... Uh, <laughs> Is it GSEs in England or was it? Is it GCSE? Something like that. Maybe it was something different. I don't know, O-levels or A-levels. A-levels probably was. They're probably in year 11, the equivalent here, Mm. or 12. Um, So he approaches them, gives gives them the spiel. They go, that's great. And then Phil has to approach the parents and get their okay. (laughs) Permission. (laughs) To to go on the European Now, Graham, I don't know about you, but I don't think you'd be giving permission for one of your daughters to go off on tour with some half-long-haired Mm. Pop singer. Especially a half long hair. Yeah. We had that haircut. It's not him, it's the audio visual guy. <laughs> that's right? the guy you gotta worry about. Yeah. yeah. But the yeah, parents yeah, yeah. the parents said How about we send the slide guy around? Yeah, to the their slide house. guy. He couldn't do anything wrong. But apparently the, the parents guy with the even hairstyle. The parents were convinced by Phil. He came around and personally visited the parents and said, I'll make sure no harm comes to them and there's the two of them that they can look yeah, after yeah. Well, each this, other. This is Phil talking. This so. is Phil talking. <laughs> Literally was Phil talking and it convinced the parents. So off they went on the tour. Yeah. Um, and the poor girls were probably initiated into the world of rock and roll yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah. And, Very quickly, yeah. Very and quickly. they actually had bought tickets for to the, the show. tour. Yeah. And then suddenly they were they were on the tour. And do you think they got a refund? It's <laughs> a good question. A good and uh, apparently so. they got a lot of grief from the fans too. They had bottles thrown well, at them and they were abused. Can I just like. say that when I first saw the new Human League? It must have been on Countdown or one of those shows. I, I thought, what the hell are they doing with these two girls? Mm. You, know, you weren't it, convinced? It, it took a while for me to come around to the, the, the two girls thing. The, the thing is that they were they were mocked in the press. The music press were basically like, well, we know where the talent and brains has gone. Yeah, That's yeah. to the other guys. And uh, Phil and the projectionist guy have <laughs> reduced to trawling <laughs> nightclubs for high school girls. <laughs> you know, so there, there was no... You know, no thought at all yeah, that yeah. this was going to amount to anything, yeah, and yeah. and you pretty much were in one camp or the other, yeah, which is no, what I was no, saying earlier right. about the, the these two uh, albums that subsequently came mm. out. You're either in the Phil camp or or in the uh, the Martin Ware camp, you know, uh, and that was kind of how it yeah. was in those days. It was the yeah, big, yeah, yeah. the big split, yeah. and everybody waited to see what would come of mm. it. And pretty much as we said, they were mocking this from day one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and just just to confuse things. Uh, the Human Leagues, such as it was, released a single called Boys and Girls, which features the girls on the cover, but they mm. had nothing to do with, with the recording. No. So it sounds like a not bad song that didn't quite make the cut on, on Travelogue. Boys and girls I think it had been, yeah, I think they might have recorded it previously, the Human League. But it certainly doesn't bear any resemblance to the subsequent two girls in the band Human League. It is actually on one of the earlier albums, Boys and Girls. 
Well, I've, I've got a version of it on one of the other uh, albums. Might anyway. be uh, one of the bonus tracks. Might have been added to it, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's yeah. definitely without the girls. Yeah, so yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, so they must have had uh, permission to use that track. Yeah. The single made it to number 47. Well, that's what gave Virgin confidence in the fact that there might be something in this. Hmm. And they decided that, um, okay, we're committed to doing this. The, he owes us a lot of money, so we're going to back him. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think it was Simon Draper, head of Virgin, visionary man, um, got Martin Russian involved, producer yep. of The Stranglers' first three albums and some of the Buzzcocks yep. output. Uh, great producer, amazing yep. producer. Got him involved. And a couple of extra musicians in uh, Joe Callis from and the Rizillos and uh, Ian yep. Bird. The Rizillos yeah. being a kind of comedy Scottish punk band. Yeah, so, so they got a couple of guitarists in because mm, that's what you need to learn to, to play synthesizers. To entirely play, to, to play nothing but keyboards. Yeah, and uh, and started working on a couple of tracks yeah, for this for yeah. this uh, project. But just harking back just briefly to the idea of the guys who became Heaven Seventeen, the the, the other two the remainder of of the Human League as well as the Human League as such. Not only did did they happen to be using the same studio, but they were on day shift and night shift respectively, and they would swap every couple of weeks. This is not the portering job. Uh, no, this is it sounds like <laughs> the it, hospital but, porter. But the studio in, in Sheffield, mm. and they were listening to each other's demo tapes, you know, like snatches of the tape. And, and it's so all on. very so, polite. But then Martin Rushant came on board as the producer. He had a listen to their demo of Sound of the Crowd. And there is a demo of Sound of the Crowd on YouTube. I don't know if you've heard I haven't heard it. Um, but all of the elements, the hand claps and the backing vocals and the bass line and all that, the things you think of as being the essence of Sound of the Crowd are all on the demo, mm. but still sounds more like an early Human League song than the Martin Rushent era. Mm. So there's a very particular quality that he, he, was, he was soon to bring to the band. I think the production on this album, well, we won't just talk about the album, but the stuff that he did for them, you think of it as really 80s and big and all this sort of stuff, it's pretty empty. Mm. The, listening to it now, there's, there's there's a big drum, Lindrum, which was obviously, you know, a really big factor in, in their success, a low kind of synth note, a bit of a bass thing. There's not much going on in there. It's not a lush production at all. In fact, the previous two albums are a lot more full in sound. It's certainly not ABC. It's no, no, it's not. It, it's quite sort of sparse mm. in, in its own way, but he gives it a fatness. The sound was was huge. I remember uh, I actually bought Sound of the Crowd when it came out mm. uh, as a single and I, because I, I was a fan, obviously, and wanted to see what they were doing. And I was really impressed. I thought it was great. I thought it was yeah, really yeah, catchy, yeah. Yeah. kind mm. of crystallised uh, what they'd been doing well. Mm. Before, but um, it sort of improved on it, as you say. And, yeah. And look, it was a big punt for anything to come out of this split. And everybody's money, as I said, was on was on the other two, yeah. Heaven Seventeen, having the success because they were seen as the talent and the brains. Mm. So Phil was under major pressure here. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's yeah. incredible now to, yeah. to look back at, but at the time, you, if he disappeared without trace, mm. you wouldn't have thought anything no, different. No. You know. No. I did um, see Martin Rushant's description of why he was asked to come on board because his production CV was basically Stranglers and Buzzcocks, mm. but he'd been working on Pete Shelley's Homo Sapien, Homo Sapien album, album. That's right, yeah. okay. which hadn't been released yet, but Simon Draper from Virgin was having a listen to it, even though it was being released by someone other than Virgin, mm. and he really liked the drum sound. And so that's why he was asked to come on board and just have a go with mm. the human leg, see if you can get something out of them. Mm. And Sound of the Crowd resulted. And the genius move mm, on Simon and, Draper's part. Yeah. And if you look at Top of the Pops, the new version of Human League doing Sound of the Crowd. With the two girls. With the two girls. Mm. And they just look fantastic. Like they look like a fully realised but really fresh and exciting pop band singing a song which is just absolutely irresistible, mm. albeit a pretty weird song if you listen mm. to the lyrics. Mm. Um, <laughs> well, nothing unusual there. No, no, the, no. That's more right. weird lyrics. Yeah. yeah, but it's like, okay, well, that's the formula. Yeah. Mm. And I think the girls then had to go back and finish their um, <laughs> HSC as well <laughs> HSC, after right, that. Yeah. So mm. that, that, yeah. that all ended well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I wonder how well they did. <laughs> well enough. Yeah. Um, but but uh, in terms of the last vestiges of their arty, 
past. I've got the 12-inch single of Sound of the Crowd myself. And did you buy it at the time? Uh, I thought I did, and it does have a $7.99 sticker on it. Well, but that's expensive yeah, for, for 1981. For one song plus, you know, a, like a, um, a remix on the, on the B-side. But uh, that's about like $150 in today's money. <laughs> so, American. But uh, on the back cover of the 12-inch single, it contains the words still vocals and synthesizers only. Ooh. So they still wanted to make the point that this was their kind of art, arty mm. yeah, this is statement, what doing. their arty yeah. anti-rock statement, mm. which yeah. is it was a weird kind of crossover moment. Yeah. Because they were, you know, there was none of that on the Dare album. You know, like the, the, the Dare album was largely pure pure pop. Well, there'd be, there'd be no real instruments at all on Dare. Is this like Queen putting no synthesizers on all of their albums? Oh, I didn't realise did. you know that? <laughs> the, the opposite thing. Yeah. The opposite Suddenly thing. I loathe them. Um, I also love the sound of the crowd, but um, I thought that would have fit on any of their earlier albums. But um, It was very poppy. It was the next single, uh, Love Action, where I thought, oh, okay, this this is where they're going now. That was the second single? Yeah, that that came out just before Dare. Well, it was very hooky and very poppy, and um, that was where the, the change in the direction became apparent. This was this was definitely chart music. Yeah. <laughs> but once again, it was amazing for an unmusical guy and an AV guy. Um, and two high school girls. <laughs> and two high school girls. To put and, to, and two guitarists. Yeah. To put together. <clears throat> and there's no guitar in any of this. <laughs> A classic 80s pop album. Well, the album, you have to talk about the whole album. Mm. I mean, there were mm. singles and then the album was released, um, I think it was October yep. 81, a month after Heaven 17's album was released yep. in September. Yep. And it was pretty much from, you know, start to finish, a classic from the very first sort of moment. Things That Dreams Are Made Of mm. is this like, this is a new decade, this is the way things are going to be. It was positive, mm. it was fun, it was... It sounded amazing. Yeah. The imagery was right. Everything about it was just coalesced into this mm. gleaming product. And we were talking about this before, that Dare, if you think of the 80s and you think about albums of the 80s, and certainly in terms of pop music anyway, I'm not going to talk about the Springsteens and other people, but Dare would be right up there mm. with anything that you care to mention. And any any dance floor would fill up immediately yeah. if Don't You Want Me came on yeah. to mm. this day, which is a pretty rare feat. Mm. It's was- just a gem. Yeah, and it was also an album that everyone loved, including mm. the critics. Mm. So it got rave reviews, even in your your NMEs. NME voted it the number six best album of the year, for instance. Mm. And this was like such a spectacularly shiny pop album, but mm. there was a kind of um, a kind of a purity and an innocence to it, and enthusiasm. Yeah. to the music that mm. just made it completely unstoppable. That's what I mean about when I say the, the 80s. It represents the 80s in the way that ABC and Simple Minds and other bands we've talked about released mm. albums at that period. It just Everything seemed to sort of brighten up mm. in the wake of kind of a depressing kind of post-punky kind of thing. And people don't think of the Human League as post-punk, but they are directly related to that and this was the result of it. It just popped up like a diamond. Mm. But it's mm. got some some other songs on it like Seconds and, and I Am The Law which are kind of interesting yeah. and kind of a bit darker. It isn't all just jingy, jingy, jingy. No, no. I Am The Law could easily have been on one of the mm. previous albums, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm taken back to when I first saw the album, when I, I was studying for my um, HSC exams, my final year school, final school. Year same as the girls. <laughs> same, same as the girls. <laughs> but I didn't get picked up in it in my nightclub to be <laughs> Says much, you. much as I am much as you a tried. fine backing vocalist. <laughs> Maybe I didn't. Def- and you were dressed like Gary Newman. I was. <laughs> <laughs> no, legitimately. Yeah, but no, seventeen or eighteen year old girls wanted to dance with me. So, but some things was, never change. I was dancing yeah. by myself, Billy Idol. Myself. <laughs> anyway, but uh, yes, I was studying for my final exams, and I could afford to buy about three or four LPs a year. 
and I went out with the express desire to buy the Simple Minds Sons and Fascination Sister Feelings called Double, two albums for the price of one, double the value. Mm. So so I went to the shop to buy it. They were sold out. So I was like, okay, I've really got to buy an album. I need an album. <laughs> you I have in, to. I was in that kind of mode. Were you swearing at this so was So I was flicking through, Gosh, flicking through the new releases Yep. and I saw the most incredible album cover and I thought, wow, this is really something. And on the basis of knowing one song, Sound of the Crowd. Which you may or may not have bought. Which <laughs> I had on cassette at the time, oh, yes. I think. It's coming back to me now. And I loved it. I thought, okay, I'm going to spend my sixteen ninety nine, as I think m- might have been the price. It seems excessive. Hmm. I used to pay top dollar. <laughs> <laughs> You're a mug. <laughs> you were going into import record stops. Uh, this, always... Actually, this, this was on import, yeah. It was, it was October 1981. So, yeah, this, this, this was a while before it came out locally. So I'm not sure if, if the two of you remember when you put the kind of needle on the record. But, but for me, like the opening bars of Things That Dreams Are Made Of, notwithstanding the fact that the first four bars are more or less identical to the first four bars of Penthouse and Pavement, the song. Just you know, exploded off the, um, and it didn't stop. It kept going, it and then it, going. it it finishes with like the knockout punch of love action, and then don't you want me is, mm. is the final track, which 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 was the biggest song of all of them. We didn't Phil didn't want it released at all, and I think Virgin persuaded him to to do it, and it was the smash hit that uh, we know and love, but. Who puts a song like that as the last song on the album too, you know? That's, that's insane, still, isn't it? It was yeah, number one for five weeks. It's quite an arty thing to do. But I was listening, I was saying to you guys, I was listening to this album yesterday and I was still, I was taken back to being, you know, 17 or whatever and I was singing along with it. It's a joyous occasion, mm. that album. Yeah, and yeah. I think it still stands up really well. I mean, it, it's very clean and it's it's very of its time, but um, production-wise, but there's something about it. So, yeah, kudos, Phil. Well done. Don't you want me? Uh, I always think the second verse is quite funny because she says, um, I was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar. That much is true. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Mm, it's, yeah. She's kind of like, look, I'll listen to the first verse. Yeah. I'm fine with that. <laughs> however. <laughs> however, the rest of it is bullshit. Yeah. And this is why. But even as then I knew. employment, I, I will it, concede that. Yes, yes. That was where I was working. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, over in Heaven 17 land, things were a little different. <laughs> yes, they weren't singing about Johnny, Joey or Dee Dee Ramone. Or ice cream. Or ice cream. Or good or, times. Or Norman Wisdom. <laughs> 50s English actors. None of those things. None of, none of those. They were getting serious. They were. And also using real instruments with a vengeance. With a vengeance, they yes. A, a very young, very good bass player. That they roped in, uh, who yep. also played the guitar on it. He was as like well. 18 years old. Yeah, he, he was a, a, a bit of a genius yep. on, on the frets. And um, backing singers, very kind of solely American sounding stuff. Uh, we don't need this fascist grouping. Political as well, yep, yep. touching on you know other issues. Reagan was uh, about to be Reagan. I prefer to call Reagan. It. That's right. Reagan's president-elect. It was a very small uh, window in human history when he was known as Reagan president-elect. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It amazes me the political intent of this album because Human League had no had none like, of that. Like, no, when but maybe Martin they hadn't Ware been writing the, in the band. They weren't writing the lyrics, obviously. So they, yeah, this is our yeah, chance to yeah. make make a statement, and it was quite sort of left wing and, and mm. quite political. It's, most it's of usually time. political, like, yeah. all, all the way through when they're not singing about soul music or whatever else, or about mm. you know penthouses and pavements. Penthouse and pavement. Yeah. Well, that's something we should talk about too. One side was the penthouse side. One side was mm. the pavement side. I mean, back when albums. Actually, back when there sides. were albums. <laughs> yeah, and back when albums had sides. So one side one side was the dancing side and one side was the relaxing side. Yeah, yeah. For an album to, to sound as different to its predecessor as Penthouse and Pavement does to its semi-predecessor, to Travelogue. Travelogue, yeah. Is, um, is just astounding because it is 
such a funky album. Mm. It's so political. It's got real instruments on it. Like there's, yep. it's got nothing in common. With, you wouldn't believe it was the same two guys. Glenn Gregory resurfaced, and they got him as a vocalist. He, there is a passing similarity to to mm. uh, he's, he, to his style. He's about the only thing that sounds like yeah. Travelog. Look, it's funny that you say that because I was firmly in the camp of these two guys for the split. I don't know if you had any position on this back then, but um, I was, you know, I was pretty much mocking Phil and going, you know, he's got, he's got nothing. Mm. These, these two guys are going to knock it out of the park. And and I probably felt that way when these albums came out. I really liked Dare. I loved it. But I thought this was the more serious. The Heaven 17 album was the more kind of yeah, worthy yeah. album. Yeah. Um, and certainly amongst my, my friends, that was the thought. But mm. when I listen to it now, it sounds a little bit ersatz, if I can use that word. Ooh, ersatz. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I've been waiting for us to use that word on this podcast. Well, here it is. <laughs> a bit faux. A little bit not really real. And... Trying like a bit they too wish hard, they were, yeah. And I they mean, wish they were black. I, yeah, maybe, and political. I, I loved this album, and, and you know, bought the single when it came out in, in early '81, March '81 or thereabouts. But when I listen to it now, I'm kind of left a little bit cold by it, which I was right. surprised at because I'd always kind of firmly put it in the proper album category compared to Dare. Yeah, and I think yeah. probably I'd change my mind. Here Because you've heard a lot more um, maybe authentic soul music or, or, or Possibly. Funk, funk music in the meantime and it sounds a little bit contrived? Maybe. That, that could be. It just sounds a little deliberate to distance themselves from the human league mm. in such a, such a striking way to prove something that, that, that maybe didn't need proving. And whereas Phil just went, well, this is good. You know, I'm just going to do this but better. They kind of were determined to use real instruments and do a soul thing, and, and you know, and try. And this whole BEF thing, you know, we're not we're not a band, we're a production company. We, As in know, British Electric, Electric Foundation, Foundation, you know, yep. we do which all was, kinds of things. Which, which we're was a business. The, yeah, which was the business. Yep. Um, that kind of spawned the band Heaven Seventeen. The project. And British Electric Foundation yeah. also. Made their own albums, yeah. um, but the imagery, instrumental music, and so on. The imagery was all tied up in that as well. Mm. I think on the yeah, cover yeah. of the album, they're there with their ponytails and ties and yep. and mobile phones, and it's all like you know, it was, it, it's a business. You know, this is what we do. A bit like uh, Public Image were doing as mm. well. You yeah, know, yeah. like but, but but in a serious way. And uh, it kind of leaves me a little bit cold now. I don't know, Graham. I mean, you were more of the soul fan in those days. I mean, what did you think of it when you heard it? Yeah, no, I, I was surprised. Like, well, I heard Fascist Groove thing first. It was, um, the lead single? Yeah, the lead single. Mm. And um, while it had that sort of frenetic sequence running through it, um, it did seem like they were dipping their toes in the in the soul waters. Did it feel that at the time to you? Were you a fan of that kind of music? I was. You were always um, a soul brother. <laughs> I was a soul brother. but But when the split happened... Um, I didn't know uh, which way to go <laughs> during the during the divorce. I didn't know which parent to go to. <laughs> so um, you should have listened to me. I I didn't have penthouse and payment, but um, I did have dare. Mm-hmm. Like like everyone, I, I bought dare. But it wasn't until um, the next album. I think it was called the Luxury Gap. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and the single Temptation. I bought that. And um, and then I went back and listened to uh, penthouse and payment. With, with me, I always go for the song. I always go for the song first. And uh, I think that uh, Phil, Phil Oakey and the audiovisual guy had, had, it, <laughs> had it down pat. <laughs> I, I, I reckon they, they surprised everyone with Dare. He's got a oh, name. Yeah. <laughs> I think Adrian, I, at least I use think his first name. They surprised themselves. I yeah. mean, mm. I'm, sh- I'm sure that the, uh, the two Heaven 17 guys couldn't believe it. They were just mm. like, yeah, mm, yeah. really? Yeah. <laughs> You couldn't do this when we were there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to this day, I don't know how their relations are, but it must must. Um, well, they got their one percent, didn't they? Go, yeah, going back yeah, to what yeah. we said before. Yeah. What a brilliant move that was. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We'll take one percent of your yeah. next album. Ha oh, oh, that, ha. That, that's a laugh. <laughs> well, they're well, t- <laughs> it's made them millionaires over <laughs> yeah. and over. Well, they're all friends now. Are they? Um, but they don't tour together. I mean, Human League uh, still no, tour. No, but and I've, 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 I've seen them interviewed together. Okay. Um, and I think I might have even read something about the British Electric Foundation, you know, as in Martin Ware and Ian, not 
actually not not Ian Craig Marsh. Glenn, Glenn Gregory. I don't think Ian Craig Marsh is. is There's only the two of them now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, but I think they went been... back to computer programming. I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. He's more his lucrative. First love. <laughs> 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 the computers hadn't changed at all in the internet. No. So what's been happening with computers while I was away? Since 1981. <laughs> Are we still doing this binary thing? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, I did. I think I, I I read something about the. Um, about the Bridge Electric Foundation wanting to get Phil Oakey to do a version of Together in Electric Dreams, British right. Electric Foundation style. Okay. Oh, I might yeah. be just making one, one of his subsequent um, solo efforts. Yes, with um, the Giorgio Moroder. Listening to Penthouse and Pavement again and looking at, at the imagery, um, it seems really clever to me and really fully realised, given the fact that the Human League stuff was a little bit half-baked, like, you know, as we've been talking about, a little bit funny, a little bit serious, a little bit arty, a little bit poppy, whereas Penthouse and Pavement, c- complete with the kind of yuppie cover mm. and what... And that, that was 1981 and that was a few years before greed is good and all that sort of stuff. And I think they they kind of anticipated the 80s mm. with that kind of look. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm wrong about that and I'm a little bit out of touch, but but when I think of 1981, I don't think of ponytails and and, 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 and greed is good and, and a real kind of corporate callousness. I, I associate that more with, with the mid-80s. Mm. But the artwork on that cover and their, their political stance, which is a really consistent political stance mm. and, um, you know, a little bit simplistic, you know, in terms of let's all make a bomb and Reagan being a fascist got in motion and all that sort of stuff. It's kind of <laughs> fairly kind of standard left, left-wing sort of talk, but it's them being angry and being passionate about stuff that means something to them and that kind of resonates as a post-punk statement and the funky stuff Mm. Um, was never quite my cup of tea. It wasn't my cup of tea then. I, I'm, you know, obviously a lot funkier these days than I was. Yeah, you, yeah. You seem a lot funkier. You're a lot, you're <laughs> a lot looser now, that's for sure, yeah. But, uh, yeah, and it's still not entirely or not, not always my cup of tea musically, but I find it to be a really impressive album, even if maybe it is a little bit kind of white guys trying to be a bit more soulful than they really are, which I think is what, what the two of you are objecting to. Well, I, I just something that I feel a bit more now that I notice, maybe, maybe not so much then. I have, I have no objection to white guys being punky. No, but but just but, it can um, feel a bit try hard. That's the only thing. Like it, mm. if, if if it doesn't work, it really doesn't work, and I can see why why you might feel that that was the case. When it comes to head to head competitions between these two albums, there can only be one winner. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there, there really isn't even a competition, is it? No, no. And that's that's the great story to come out of the split because. Phil Oakey was uh, against all odds. Got up off the canvas, went to the <laughs> local nightclub, got himself a couple of schoolgirls, knocked it out of the park. <laughs> and that's a feel-good story everyone can get behind. <laughs> Especially in 2018. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In the current climate, yeah. it's perfect. So you would never get away with it today. <laughs> no. So um, after the huge success of yes. Dare, yeah. Well, and the relatively uh, lacklustre performance of Penthouse and Pavement, mm, mm. we go back to the drawing board. I've read something that, that Phil Oakey was, when he heard that Don't You Want Me had gone to number one in the US, <coughs> he didn't celebrate, he panicked. Right. That it was like, okay, how the hell do I follow this? Mm. Because I think he didn't quite know how they'd managed to do Dare. Mm. And if you put together, as we're talking about, all the components, even if you include the amazing producer, Martin Rushent couldn't do it on his own. No. I mean, he hadn't done it with anyone other than Human League. There was only one band he'd made sound like the Human League, apart from Pete Shelley. Mm. <laughs> um, and so I was like, okay, well, how do we synthesise all of this again? Yeah. And mm. it's a glorious pop moment, but one of the classic things that we all know about glorious pop moments is that you can't just reproduce no. them. Mm. So, you know, where does the band go? And well, they struggled, didn't they? They did. Well, they their, their next single wasn't for what, another twelve months or so. Was it no. Mirror Man? Uh, well, but, well, uh, these these next two singles they released. It was an EP. It was an EP. EP called Fascination, which came out in '83, which had but, uh, Mirror Man and Keep Feeling Keep Fascination. Keep Feeling Fascination. Yeah, it? but yeah. Mirror Man came out as a single in November 1982. Right. So well, about tw- were... twelve months after yeah, there. But that's all they had. I think. Yeah, yeah. So so it took them twelve months to come up with a follow up song. Um, and apparently Mirror Man was written about Adam Ant, 
<laughs> the Ursatz um, Motown song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Keep Feeling Fascination. Okay. The bass was quite right, sort of right, uh, right. reminiscent of something that they had hated previously. But uh, Martin Russian produced this EP as well, yep. Yep. and that was his, pretty much his last involvement with the band. Well, um, I, I thought it was pretty good that after recording all those great pop songs on Dare, those next two singles, uh, those next two songs, did really well for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they're good singles. Anything they did after that probably would have done okay. Mm. But they were both strong singles and and strong in different ways from Dare. I think I think mm. they were they were interesting. The whole Motown thing, you know, as I've described, I wasn't you know particularly funky back in '82. <laughs> but uh, so that, how that, you've changed? That wasn't that wasn't wholly my my cup of tea. But I was impressed that they were doing something a little bit different, that they'd moved on a little bit from Dare and equally with Keep Feeling Fascination. And that keyboard melody in Keep Feeling Fascination is so weird. I think it's like slightly detuned or something. Yeah, it's kind of grating, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. But but really clever. And, and the film clip for Keep Feeling Fascination is brilliant. The uh, red dot, if you if you recall the, the film clip. I, think I, don't, I don't remember it, actually. Everything's painted red in this room, in this condemned house mm. and uh, yeah anyway, so the, the car outside an Austin 1800 is uh, just painted red completely and so there's this kind of um, target this big round red target but anyway as it, as it may that was keep feeling fascination but then okay. they had to record the follow up album mm. which was Hysteria which uh, I think they might have started out with Martin Russian on board as producer and then moved on to what, Chris Thomas and yeah, someone else former Sex Pistols producer yep and, and it took them nearly three years mm, from yeah. there yeah. to, to come yeah. out with this next album, which, as you were saying, how do you follow something as big mm, as Dare? As big as it took them a mm. long time and obviously they were having trouble yep. doing it. Yep. But I'd, um, again, I, I was pretty impressed by the lead in single, um, The Lebanon, which was full-on guitar song and finally the guitar guy... Who, they, who they'd recruited yeah. <laughs> three years earlier, got, got to play, you know, got to hit some strings. They gave him a call. So yeah. <laughs> Get the you guitar know, You know we employed you. Yeah. <laughs> we got something for you to do. Yeah. Yeah. Put the yeah. keyboard down. I yeah. only just mastered this. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But it was always going to be downhill um, for the Human League after they were nominated for a Grammy for Best New Artist in 83 and were beaten by Men at Work. By Men at Work, that's so, right, yeah. Um, wow. But, uh, yeah, um, then it was on to Hysteria. And um, the, how, do you guys, let, how do you guys feel about Hysteria? Well, it's, it's you know, it's a bit of a letdown, I guess, and it's a nice sort of end of you know, point for us to talk about the Human League because it was kind of the beginning of the end of that period for them anyway. They obviously have, have had a few hits here and there over the years. The, the mm. Jimmy Jam, Terry, Terry yep. Lewis song, Human, is a great song. Yep. But but that period was finished. Yeah. Um, yep. And as all these periods must end. Mm. And uh, I think the uh, the Heaven 17 guys sort of plotted on for another album as well. Mm. Yeah. Another, they think they did three albums all up and yep. that kind of faded out for them as well. Well, they had the, uh, the big temptation... But in terms of what the Human League were doing in 1981, that synthesizer pop stuff was fresh and exciting. Mm. And by 1984, everyone was sick to death of it. Mm. Even so Huey Lewis and the News had caught on. 
Had they? <laughs> Speaking of the, postponed. That yeah. was the last band on the planet I thought you were going to reference. <laughs> well, you never know what I'll come out with. No, oh, I, feel, right. I have a little anecdote for you about, uh, about Phil Oakey. Huey Lewis? No, Phil Oakey. Not Oke, another Huey Lewis anecdote. Phil Oakey inspired me to pierce my nipple. Now, you didn't see that coming, did you? No. Phil Oakey had both nipples pierced. That's it's right. not a little known fact, but it's probably not commented on I as often as I'd it. like. I can it. Yeah. And um, I, I, he was a very stylish chap. So um, this was in '81, and I, as I said, I was a Human League fan, and I decided, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna half emulate Phil Oakey. So I just did the one. Did the one. Did the wow. one, and uh, did it myself. It wasn't easy. Well, I remember seeing that that pierced nipple because we were friends in 1991. <laughs> <laughs> and I would often go around shirtless in, in those it days. It was a shirtless time. Yeah. Even midwinter, I seem to recall. <laughs> this was obviously pre-Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> oh, uh, well and truly, yeah. yeah. Mm. So, um, so, yeah, I, I, I remember being probably mortified. Probably horrified, by, shocked. I think mm. you've passed out. I might have passed out. I think you pulled out a hanky and started waving in front of your face. <laughs> the vapors, I, was, I think, is I was what it all, used to be all called. A flutter. <laughs> <laughs> but in a terrified way. In a terrified way, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah so yeah. thanks, Phil, mm. uh, for that. So um, yeah, I don't know where that where that leaves us. Um, well, it, it leaves us, um, I suppose, reminiscing about um, the greatness of Dare, in particular, mm-hmm. Human League, and how they managed to kind of crystallise. They captured a, a particular moment in pop history and that they were the perfect band at the perfect time with that particular sound. And for an album with what could have been six or seven top ten hits, although they only released three or four singles, and um, as exemplified by Don't You Want Me, which is a song we'd all be happy to sing along with from beginning to end right now and you can't say fairer than that. Okay, pop music, let's go. <laughs> Anyone here like the Human League? <laughs> 